Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Joining me, Gretchen and Bill, welcome. Hello. Hey there. So hopefully you guys had a wonderful 4th of July holiday. It was hot. It was hot. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> Yeah, it was the same thing up here in, in Oregon. We hit, uh, I think it was 98 or something, and then some places even 100. So, oh, boy. But I uh, got to do a barbecue and that kind of thing, and, uh, you know, felt like uh, flying. It was kind of a fun thing. So at the end of the day, I hope everybody had a great, safe 4th of July holiday and uh, looking forward to going on from that. And actually, we have started getting back into some events again we're going to be talking later in the show about rage con bill i know you got to cover that and mm-hmm. today as we're airing we're at the silver age comic con in reno so we'll be talking about that next week because obviously we had to record before we got on site so uh, from everything from at the point that we were looking at it, it looks like a great event so we'll be able to tell you about that coming up we're also going to be talking a little later in this segment about dated technology there's conversation about this. We've talked a little bit about it in the past, but it seems like out-of-date systems are starting to really rear their heads. So we're going to talk about a little bit of what's going on and why, as well as what do you do about things that you made in, say, a previous word processor that's no longer supported or other stuff, and how do you get back to that information? So we're going to have that coming up for you here today as well. And just a reminder to check us out at userfriendlyshow.com. That is our website. That's everything user-friendly. We have all of our past episodes there. We have Tech Wednesday, our blog articles, and a number of other things, including past season shows. And I'm hearing a rumor that at the end of August, because we finally found them, our original season three is going to drop. So I'll keep you appraised on that. And we might have to go hide afterwards. Well, (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) We were getting into it then, but... uh, Boy, have things changed over the years, some good and some obviously really not so good. So mm-hmm. anyway, we'll keep you up to date on that and send us your questions and your comments through the website. It's all there for you. What do we have in the news this week? Tech makes it easier than ever to spend your money. Yeah. So <laughs> some of the things that are coming down, this is a report from Engadget that is talking about this in a little different context, but it's what it really kind of boils down to. So Android TV's new shop tab makes it easier to buy movies and TV shows, and that's their press release. But you're seeing this across the board. Venmo now supports tap to pay on Android phones. And there's a number of other things like this where spending money, you know, you go to the stores and even whether you pay with cash, I think people still do that somewhere. Or if you use a credit card, there's still the process. But online, it doesn't not necessarily feel like you're spending money. And a lot of companies realize this, that people will part with their money a lot easier if there's a way to do it where it's just a click of a remote or a tap of a screen. And that's where this is headed. So it's something to be very cognizant of. I know I had to rope myself back in because these in-game microtransaction purchases, uh, specifically, my thing was the Simpsons game. And when I realized I had spent over $600 on it in one year, that was when it was time to um, start to audit this a little bit. because like coffee at an expensive national coffee chain, it can add up very quickly in small amounts. And it does. And for me, it ended up being a car payment. So just something to think about. Red Dead Redemption gets new rating in Korea. 
Yeah, so Bill, tell us, Red Dead Redemption, I know it's a video game, and I've heard about it in Big Bang Theory and I actually have seen it. Can you tell us just a real quickly what, what it is and why this would be interesting if it's getting a reboot? Well, it's uh, basically a game about the Wild West. It is very gritty, very, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood. There's a whole bunch of other aspects to it, but it is a uh, very direct and adult game <laughs> yeah yeah and uh it's one thing i will say on that too is it's published by rockstar games and they're a company that's known for very um kind of in your face violent and in some cases true to life although some of them's a little over the top but the company that made that game a while back where you were breaking out of a prison and had to kill the guards and everything to do it so and they do get you know, auto so yeah <laughs> yeah grand theft auto obviously being one of their most well-known series and from that standpoint, the this was originally uh, released on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 12 years ago. I think it was 2010. And uh, people love the game, and actually it was really good. So updating it for PlayStation 5, Xbox One, and maybe even Nintendo Switch, if Nintendo will allow it, would make a lot of sense. So we'll see what happens, but uh, that's the rumor. Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk may fight in Roman Colosseum. <laughs> yeah, I love the headlines that this thing is getting. Now, we all know it's not going to happen because Elon's mom said no. Yeah. But that be, you know, <laughs> so that, that was the end of that. But that being said, you know, I think that there might be a very slight possibility this is something that's just being done for marketing. Just just uh, that's guess. what I think it is. <laughs> not so really. I will tell you, Bill. So not really. Yeah, you know, like, duh. Now, I will tell you this. If Mark and Elon go at it in the Roman Colosseum, I will be planning a trip to Italy. I would go to see that. But um, <laughs> it would be amusing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll see what actually happens. I think this might be one that's best kept in the metaverse. Agreed. Apple cuts Vision Pro goals after production issues. Yeah, and I was doing some research on this to try to figure out if it's really a production issue, like a, you know, getting the parts type thing, or if it's been an interest. And there's not a lot of information. Of course, this was just announced recently, so there wouldn't necessarily be yet. But basically what's happening is they uh, were originally planning to make, I, I don't know, I think it was a million and a half units or something of that nature. And now it's down to under 400,000 this year. Now, again, for anybody that hasn't heard this, Headset is a VR headset from Apple. Oh, it does have some nice features, but also has a very nice price tag at $33,499 each. Okay, so this is so, like a VR helmet yeah. or yeah, a mask? Yeah. Okay, it's like your I had Quest no too. idea what it was. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like All the right. Facebook Quest or Meta Quest or whatever it is uh, today. And um, so, and then on top of that, the Actual production companies are saying that they've only sourced enough parts to really make about 150,000 units. And then there also is plans for a cheaper version of it, but those plans have been pushed back and we don't have a release date anymore. So we'll see where this ends up going. Um, it is a very complicated product. It's also a first generation product. So the idea that they're having some difficulties could be very real and they may just simply have not gotten the orders for it. Majority of U.S. industry and business use cloud computing. Yeah, so this was a listener question that came in, and 
cloud computing is like Amazon Web Services, um, Google, uh, Microsoft, all of these companies offer these things. Rackspace is one of the older ones. And there's a, a lot of smaller companies that also do cloud services. Basically, the idea is, is that in the distant past, you know, like five years ago or more, um, <laughs> you would have had servers in your office. So the way that you handled a network at that time was that you would buy equipment. The equipment would be installed in the back room. You would have someone that would support it that um, according, what was the name of that show? The uh, um, one IT where the guy crowd? was, yeah, IT crowd, you know, you had your server administrator. And if you haven't seen IT crowd, look it up. I recommend it. But in any event, these things were costly because you had the cost of the person or team that maintained the equipment. You had the cost of the equipment. You had the cost of the infrastructure to run it, internet network, all that kind of stuff. And then when the equipment got old two or three years down the road, you had the cost of replacing it. So cloud computing has basically replaced that business model with you still do what you would have done with those servers, save files and various email and all that kind of stuff. But it, instead, you pay for time on one of these large cloud services like Amazon Web Services. So what happens is, is you're removing a lot of your staffing issues. You're removing almost all of the equipment issues. And the connectivity we have to the internet now will, for the most part, support being able to operate and function that way. Plus, if you have more than one location or need offsite access, it makes all of that a whole lot easier. And to that end, we're now seeing that about 89% of US companies use what they call a multi-cloud approach. And that means they might still have some equipment on site, but they do the primarily or the majority of their data on the cloud. Now, the disadvantage to this, of course, is that if you lose your internet connection or if something gets hacked or something of that yeah. nature, it can cause some problems. Amazon Web Services experienced this last year. I was right in the middle of it because I have a client that uses them, well, a couple, including us actually, for a variety of different things. And they had a data center go down. Now it's unusual. I have found Amazon to be pretty stable considering, but this did happen. And for a while you couldn't get to resources. And in some cases, some stuff got deleted that couldn't be recovered if it hadn't been backed up. Now, again, that's not the norm, but it does happen. And what else is happening here is a lot of these services will jury if they like your content. And if you're providing a website or something that isn't in line with what they consider to be appropriate to do, they can cut off your service and oh shut my. down your business. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, it, wow. it, it's happened. And um, mm -hmm. so you do have to consider all of these things. Plus, you do need to have access to somebody that knows how to work with these services. Mm -hmm. So. And I don't know, Gretchen, I'm going to ask you this question because you were just made the comment that uh, that you didn't know about this. I think it's accurate that a lot of people don't realize that their data is so shared in that sense. It's secure usually, but it's still not it's not within the company, you know? Yeah. And then there's things that um, there's a lot of people who don't trust the cloud idea. You know, they don't want their stuff stored away somewhere else where somebody can get to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you know, and, and, and like we were saying, we're going to talk in a minute here about um, data technology. So this is actually a good segue to get into that. And the reality of the situation is, is that you're looking at it from two kind of different directions because the idea of online storage and the idea that most things now are stored in that capacity is disconcerting to some people, especially with all that's been going on with the hacks. Last week, we talked that the 
Oregon DMV in its entirety, among a number of other organizations, lost all of their customer data. So that being said, you know, you can have the same, someone was able to breach, say, Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure or one of these cloud platforms, they could get to a lot more data. Now, the flip side of that is, is because the data centers are run by multi-billion dollar companies whose business model depend on things being secure, they have the ability to spend a lot more time, money, and resource to invest in keeping that data secure than a small company would. So there is a plus from that standpoint too, and I'm I'm not sure so, if one's really better. So is there still a need for the massive cooling system for these servers? The data centers, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's a so Amazon Web Services or cloud computing rack space. Um, before those really came into things, there were a lot of other smaller companies that would rent where you could put a server in a data center. Kind of environment. These mm-hmm. are really at a very simplistic level, just a very large version of that. The difference being that you don't put your own equipment in there, you use theirs. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So now, Bill, I know you've worked with distributed networks in the past. Um, I, I know you worked with a school district for a while and some stuff like that. Do you think it's more secure to use these type of services or do you think it was better the way that we used to do it where it was all pretty much all in-house? I think it depends on what it is as far as information. I think cloud computing to a degree is significantly more secure than a running your own servers and firewalls. But it, it, like I said, it comes down to like what you're doing with the school district. I 50, 50, you know, if it was the government running one different story, but huh. letting a major corporation, I, I'm not entirely sure that's, you know, feasible. Um, but again, the information in-house, you know, it, it's depends on really what it is. I mean, if it's just grades then it doesn't really matter, but there is a lot of personal information that gets used that way. But yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to the situation. But it's also hard to find a, a competent IT people who know how to deal with the servers. And that yeah. has been a problem for years. So yeah. if you're a small company, or even a medium-sized company like a school district, they may not have a, an easy time finding the talent that's required to monitor these these servers. Yeah, and it was a lot of other issue, like a lot of the security required static IPs, so you know nothing could just access it. It had to have an IP address that was given by the servers, and so it was secure to a pretty good degree other than being in physical contact with it or a system, but it was just a lot of extra work and yeah, you're right. Finding competent IT people who can do that is a stretch in a lot of places. This is one of the biggest complaints about that and and the complaints, nothing new. What they would run into is if you were a large enough organization that you had a staff IT department, finding the talent to do that would be extremely expensive and generally and i know in our own industry you stay on a job for a year or two it's not like it used to be where you went work for a company and retired so kind of from both ends if you weren't a big enough company to pay the salary to have a staffed it department you would generally have to use a it company and that had all kinds of problems too is uh, just like a car repair shop there were good ones and there were some very unethical ones mm-hmm. and 
you know, trying to deal with that. And your business, especially today, but even 10 years ago, this was true, runs so much off of information technology that you're entrusting a major component of allowing you to be able to operate to whatever solution you've picked here. And if it doesn't work, you can be out of business through no fault of your own. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's the next step is data technology. One of the things the data centers or the um, cloud computing centers do is help to get around that because you're able to upgrade without having to buy new equipment. So there isn't the upfront cost, but there are still a lot of places in this world that do use on-site servers one of them being the FAA. And we know earlier this year that they had to do a nationwide ground stop because of a failure on a computer system that was something like 30 years old and to get it going again. And from my understanding at this point, they're still using it. There's some plans in place to upgrade, but it's still using the old system. Uh, Southwest Airlines also over the holidays last year, a lot of us I'm sure remember quite clearly, especially if you were traveling, shut down, there was a storm, and then their computer system that they had couldn't get them back into operation for over a week. And something like, on some days, 80% of their flights were canceled, not because of weather or problems at airports, but just simply they couldn't get the staff in the right place, they couldn't get the slips rebooked, they couldn't get the passengers rebooked because the computers didn't work to support it. Now, a question, Gretchen, I know you brought in, I think from a listener, this might even be your own, is software like WordPerfect. And there's a lot of old technology that is actually still used. And when I started researching this specific one, I found there's actually a lot of people that are still running WordPerfect. I don't know how, but it's out there. But you're dealing with as things move along, especially from a big shift in old infrastructure to what we do today, that you have file formats that can't be opened. WordPerfect is one of them. Um, yep. There don't seem to be a lot of tools to convert it that type of a thing. And also storage, floppy disks and other things like that. We've talked about that some in the past, and even going back further, things like analog tapes. So videotapes and reel-to-reel and even cassette tapes. There are companies out there that will convert all of this to digital. Um, it does cost money. In fact, I just did some of that with some reel-to-reel tapes I found from some of my stuff that my dad had when he died. I was curious to see what was on them. But it's not that terribly easy to do. And the other thing is, is with digital formats that are no longer supported, WordPerfect is a, for example, when you do convert it, it may not completely hold all of the original formatting correctly. You can get your data back, but, you know, fonts and all that kind of stuff. And anybody that used WordPerfect remembers that you had to put in all these control codes and different things like that to be able to do various things. It wasn't until very late in WordPerfect's existence that it became WYSIWYG where it worked you know, where you saw what you got on the screen. It used to be this blue background. And you'd have to know that one highlight meant bold, the other one meant a font. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, a WordPerfect 5.1, I worked with it for many years. I know it well. Another word processor that's not as well known but was used in a lot of government and schools was called Ability. That's another format that is not really that widely supported anymore trying to convert that. The biggest one, though, is Flash. We all remember Flash. Yep. I think, <laughs> I hope <laughs> it hasn't been gone for quite that long, but you know, it is definitely another thing where I know um, some, a lot of companies have used flash for training videos and didn't update. And then all of a sudden flash was disabled and all of that stopped. There was a train network in Europe that used flash for doing their billboards and their schedule and 
all that kind of stuff. And it almost shut down the train network. Now, a lot of that is lack of prior planning. We knew yeah. Flash was going to go away for a long time and it just wasn't done. But even so, that's the case. Do you guys have any stuff that's on like floppy disks or zip disks yes. or any of that? And yeah. I have I have a, a bunch of WordPerfect files that I'm like, I couldn't open. I couldn't, you know, and I'm just like, okay, what? how do I deal with this? Yeah, so we're going to be fixing that. But uh, I actually have a USB floppy drive. Um, I don't know if you can still get them, but I did because I had a bunch of stuff I had to move. And occasionally get that from clients. As far as physical media like DVDs and all that kind of stuff, I know that we are technology is discontinuing that at the end of the year because very few people still use them and are I moving to pictures on DVDs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the drives and the, and one of the things that drives this too is the size of our files and things that we need keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So yeah. in the days of floppy disks, it was the original five and a quarter inch, the eight inch was less, but the five and a quarter inch, which was the, more common one that we would have seen in that era was 360K of information, okay? So mm -hmm. not even a megabyte, not even a third of a megabyte would fit on it. And then they double-sided and they did high density, which got a little bit more. And then the other floppy disks, the three and a half ones that Apple used and then kind of became a standard was 1.44 megabyte. Yeah. So when you think about that, that's not a lot of space by today's means, but back then it was. And then you go to CDs and DVDs, which are now being considered small, too, because what we need actually exceeds that. Plus, you have physical plastic that's being manufactured and discarded and all the rest of that. So flash drives and some of these other things have come down and cost enough that you can use them that way. But for the most part, it's zero-day updates. Bill, I know you and I have talked about this in the past, but that's how they do it now. You, you get something where you download it. And there's either no physical media, or if there is, the physical media just starts to download. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, going back to that, it is all about prior planning. You know, I what I lost across those medias was nothing that I needed. You know, everything I needed, I kept updating to something new. But a lot of people didn't. Well, when a lot you of have people a computer didn't. crash and you lose a software, a vintage software... Sometimes that option isn't available. Yeah, yeah that what, and the other thing is you have a relative, and the other thing is you have a relative pass away that's stored in these formats and stuck them somewhere, and you'd like to get access to the information, but now twenty years has passed, so you don't have that, you know, that capability. So, in any event, something out there. Let us know your stories. Have you had problems with this? Have you had success in, with it? Userfriendlyshow.com. Love to talk about this and see some real world examples. After the break, we're going to be diving into a little bit of pop culture, talking about RageCon and the um, Comic Con that uh, we're going to be actually covering in some depth next weekend. A little bit of DD stuff. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Thank you for staying with us and checking out our second segment. We're going to be talking about a couple of conventions, some role playing stuff here coming right up. And we want to hear from you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Userfriendlyshow.com is the place to go. You can get to all of our social media, past shows, submit your questions, read our blogs, 
and see what all of this is about. All right, so Bill and Gretchen, you know, we haven't done an event in a while, and I think let's go ahead and talk about the uh, Silver Age Comic Con first here, which, so we record before we air, so this is airing Saturday, and we're at the convention, what would be today, and this segment was recorded before that, so we're going to actually be covering the show next week, but it sounds like it's a really cool one. I'm going to go ahead and approach it from that direction, even though it's a little odd on the way the day will play out. And this is a convention, Silver Age Comic Con, that was originally established in 2015. It's one that I have not been to. Have either of you been to this before? I haven't. Uh, I think we went to it once. Okay, maybe. But... I, I like. I know we went to Comic Con in Reno, but that was a Wizard World. Um, there was also one at the the one of the casinos, the Sands. Yeah, and that's but... what I'm wondering. So the the history of this, it started in Campbell, California. Is Campbell Comic-Con, or Camel-Con, I think is what they called it. Um, and they moved to Reno in 2022, and the first year it was at the Circus Circus. So that wouldn't have been the Sands one. Oh, okay. And then this year they're moving it to the convention center, the Real Sparks Convention Center, so that's going to be kind of cool to see that, where that's going from there. And, you know, it's a one-day, which is great, and they actually have a focus on a wide variety of things. So you know, basically whatever fandom you like, it sounds like you might find something for it here, uh, you know, kind of across the board from the normal comic books and movies and all of that kind of stuff, superheroes, sci-fi, fantasy, anime, cosplay, and on and on. So it'll be a cool one. We're going to give a complete rundown on this next week, and it'll be kind of fun to be back there. And speaking of which, Bill, you just did RageCon. What is RageCon? Uh, RageCon is a... Uh gaming convention that's here in reno and by that i mean mostly tabletop um unlike some of the other ones which are video games or like chaz covers which is uh uh gambling <laughs> right <laughs> gaming in the sense of gambling yeah 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 it is a three-day event that they had over at the nugget this year um didn't have too much opportunity to go because of things just went on the last day, but it was still quite an event. Um, very rare to walk into a place that you just see, you know, an entire convention floor full of tables and people playing every kind of tabletop game, card games, uh, board games, Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Call of Cthulhu, whatever you think of. And there was a good vendor room. A little smaller than some of the vendor rooms I'm used to in conventions, but what they had was a lot of quality. Um, my wife, uh, quite the dice goblin, we barely made it through the first five stalls without spending a considerable <laughs> amount of money on dice, but yeah, I, was I do the same. Jeremy would have done the same thing. <laughs> oh, I was, I was, I was sad because there was a one booth there that had an R2D2 and another uh, R2 Chopper? droid. You showed me Chopper. Okay. And, you know, one of the little pod racer droids. Those were amazing scale replicas. The R2 sat there and beeped. There's a few things moved on it. Looked like it could have been right out of a movie. And that was a beautiful booth, too. They had pins of all kinds for, you know, every Star Wars faction, every comic book, every pop culture thing. Um, a lot of uh, local vendors. One was like the Glass Die here in Reno, which is downtown. It's our 
local uh, bar and gaming place. So you can go there, get drinks, food, whatever. They also have tabletop games. That was lovely. Um, a lot of other places that came in, a lot of 3D printed stuff that was very, very high quality. Handmade stuff, like belting, even. <laughs> So that made it interesting. A lot of miniatures, a lot. Cool. Um, it just was such a very laid back convention. You know, we've been to some that are very rushed feeling. Um, RageCon definitely had that sense of, you know, sit down, take your time, have a good time. Did it seem so like people are- were having fun? Oh, yeah. So when you go to an event like this, um, and this is not something I've actually ever done in that way before, um, would you bring your own group and just find a game to play, or do you just join with random people? How does that work? Both. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, you could pick a board. They had uh, these signs that were double-sided. You flip them over. And what I mean by a sign, it was like a pyramid or a triangular-shaped thing that was about four feet tall of a foam board that either had looking for a teacher slash game master or looking for players. And okay. so you could pick something like that, go to a table. And if people were interested, they would come over or so I think they, a lot of convention volunteers were there to do that. I noticed, um, in registration, you know, if it, next year I'm thinking about doing it, I'm going to re- uh, probably volunteer as a dungeon master because I've been playing for quite a while doing that, as you guys know. Um, yeah. Quite a discount that way. And I think that's how it kind of works out. You know, you, you're there, and if people want D&D or the preset uh, events that are happening, like they had a lot of Ventures League and Pathfinder Society stuff and Starfinder Society stuff, which is those different games um that were in the actual uh what would be called programming but i think there was also a lot of room there for the volunteers and play uh, people who were coming there to just have games pop up or whatever because there was an entire corner i want to say oh 30 by 30 feet with shelves and tables of just Every board game, you know, we've been to places where they've had board games like that, uh, like the little comic shop had that where you could just play it. This was a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what kind of age groups did you see? Was it a wide range or a specific mm-hmm. range? Families. A lot of families, actually. I saw everything. I, I mean, yeah, you saw everything from, you know, uh, little kids to, I, I, I assume some of those had to be, in, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, even older, maybe. So, yeah, so, so this is an event that appeals to all ages. That's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. So do people cosplay at an event like this? There were a couple. Um, it, it was cut back a lot more than I'd say, like, it's Snafu or probably the Comic-Con. Uh, just because of what it is, there was a lot more people who were in uh, original characters or OC. Um, there was a couple from the uh, popular game Genshin Impact that were there cosplaying. Um, so you, it kind of just brings in the whole different thing, you know. There's it's uh one of those uh, what do they call them uh, Venn diagrams where it's the overlap. 
Right. You know, mm-hmm. so here in Reno, there's a lot of overlap between multiple conventions that we have. And so you get some from everything. Now, I would think that this would be a way too to be able to try out some new material. One issue that you know comes up a lot, and we get some questions on this too, is that if you're looking for a new tabletop game, want to try something out, or uh, you know, you have board games, certainly it can cost upwards of a hundred dollars just to buy the material to be able to oh, yeah. play it, and then you don't know if you're going to like it or not. So this could kind of be almost a try before you buy, in that sense, do you think? Oh, without a doubt. And like I said, there are, there are some companies. Um, you know, local gaming stores or like we have the glass die where you can go there and you're basically checking out a game. Right. Uh, okay. So you don't, you know, play before you buy that kind of thing. Um, I know for myself, you know, it, getting into like tabletop, like Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition is a lot easier than some of the games we've gotten into. And I, years ago I reviewed a, Triton gaming system and that was one that I believe my experience was that was if you don't know how to play find someone who does because you're not going to figure it out on your own oh boy <laughs> it took me a while you know I, I, right. I tried it for a while and I know you know we've run into some of that stuff during COVID we were doing a lot of the online things in fact we're going to talk about that a little bit here with the systems for that but we had tried out some new systems and in order to do that you have to buy the material just like a book except it's virtual but some of them work pretty well and some of the others like that star trek game were just difficult and you know and that it was, was kind of like bad. that was a, yeah, it's that not was that, bad yeah it's not that we just like star trek but the game itself the mechanics were not something that was very you know it made it not fun because it was so complicated it that's was intuitive that was one of those problems like the rest of the game was great yeah the combat was just it took four of us to figure out how the heck it worked and it was well yeah and and then it also wasn't consistent because and pick on that one a little bit since we all know about the role play element of it was great actually i think it was better than in some other systems because it Mm -hmm. made that a priority but the the combat so like the hand-to-hand combat i mean if you wanted to fire your phaser, you almost needed to be an engineer that literally knew how to build and fire a phaser to figure out how to do it. it oh, was. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's been like a thing that I've just experienced across games, you know. Uh notoriously like Shadowrun is just handfuls of D6s and trying to figure out, you know, modifiers and things like that. Uh 5th edition cut that down, but there's even systems that just use D20s. Like there's a 2D20 system where you're only using D20s and or fate where you're using special dice where literally they're symbols on the dice and you know from there. Um, I know back in the day of World of Darkness when it was running D10s, it might still be, I'm not sure. I had ended up buying dice that were specific to that game system, not because I don't have a pile of D10s, but it made it easier when you had these D10s that had symbols for the numbers that meant you had a crit success, you know, because it covered right. like eight through ten. And the others, yeah, you know, some you of that, had. So it was just some of that can Warhammer is another notorious one for having to buy very specific things. Warhammer um, is expensive in the estates, and that is one of those biggest problems I've always had with it. Yeah, I have I a, um, I have like a it's, it's I guess it's a tabletop game. Um, 
we mostly bought it. It was it's a Star Wars game, and it has all these wonderful ships. Oh, Tie Fighter and and I, well, there's Tie Fighters. There's I mean, uh, we have Slave One and all kinds of things. Yeah, I, think I that's had no X-wing. idea how to play the game. It was something that Jeremy bought, and he wanted to get a, uh, enough of a fleet together that a group of us could play it. I have a whole bunch of these ships. I have no idea how to play the game. So yeah. I, you know, <laughs> it, it is someday. actually not a, not a hard one. Once you know okay. which numbers you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a tank based one called tanks. That's very similar in the rule okay. sets. But yeah, that is, there was that kind of thing is the investment. So, you know, Warhammer, I guess you could say is probably one of the most expensive because those miniatures, even for plastic, which I will state are high quality, are expensive beyond all belief. But that's mostly mm. importation and export stuff going from Great Britain to here. Oh, okay. But Game Workshop also just publishes new stuff all the time, and you have to have the special book for this, plus the giant rule book, plus the you know fifty pages or fifty encyclopedias to. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I joke, but it seems like it. No, it no, and that's very true. And, and there's also seems to be this almost cultural thing. If you bring your own miniatures from a different system, you're you know thrown out of the room. Oh, so, without um, a doubt. Really? And, oh, they used to have yeah. rules for it, and this was okay. where the uh, a lot of the putting magnets into miniatures so you could swap them was. If you didn't bring the miniatures that had the exact weapons you were fielding, you weren't allowed to use them. Right. Wow. So you would have a unit that was this setup and a unit that was this setup, and it was all the same unit. <laughs> oh, it just uh yeah i know it, it, it and you know we've run into this stuff but it is definitely something that in recent years is becoming more mainstream in fact in february of this year the american library association put out a press release in a book on how to include tabletop role-playing at school and public libraries and they've been working on some systems to try to get people back into the libraries because as things have changed with the internet the classic part of it going in to look stuff up isn't used as much or at all in some cases. So there's some other things. And I've seen libraries that will check out things like popcorn makers and stuff you would never guess. But this does <laughs> seem like something like a natural. Now, Bill, would you mm-hmm. see eventually going to a library to play a game as something that would happen? I've actually tried to get that to be something that happened. Really? Along with, uh, I think there's four H groups for it. Um, there are a lot of different places that do it. Um, yeah, I tried to do that back in the, where I used to live, just to try and get you know a group together because you know coming up to Reno and you guys all moved. <laughs> yep, it was a, a thing, but uh, I would like to see it happen more. Um, you know, I like to see local gaming stores get theirs, but. In some cases, and this is nothing against them, they're bringing in business. They tend to draw in high schoolers that are looking for a place to be that's not home. Yeah. And your third, your third location. That used to be the mall, but that doesn't exist anymore in a lot of places. So something like this actually makes a lot of sense. And, you know, putting that together. Now, I do have to say, the when we went for coffee that one time at that... Uh, role-playing game store build sort of by where you live i thought that place was pretty cool yeah that but i think first and foremost you know they are a coffee shop they definitely sell comics and games um and you know they they they, they, 
hold space for a lot of that uh, cosplay and they have a D&D night. You know, I, I see that with the rise of uh, the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons, you know, more of this is going to happen. You know, eventually, though, there is going to be issues, I think, um, Wizards of Coast causing those a lot oh. that's going to change it into other games. But I think it really brings a lot of people in. When I was in oh. high school, we used to play D&D at Porta Subs, which is a, for those who don't have Porta Subs in your area, it's a sandwich shop. And we would order subway. sandwiches and get drinks and chips. And we just sit at the table uh, and play for hours, you know, and if somebody needed some more chips or, or, or a drink, they'd go and get it. But it was fun. But I, so I can see how that could be a business model for somebody like a yeah. coffee shop. Well, that's what the glass die is doing. You know, it's a bar and such that's running the same. You know, we've had comic book shops that have tables for gaming. I mean, that's nothing new. But I think some of the direction that this is going, like with the coffee shop and glass die, and we've got some similar things up here um, uh, in the area, too, that seem to cater a little bit more and to a different age group. Because, in fact, that coffee shop by your house, Bill, has, I think it had a bar, too, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. So. You know, you're you're obviously going to a crowd that's not teenagers because 21 and over for alcohol. Well, it also had a split there. You know, there was seating that was, this was the people that were over 21, the ones that not. And the gaming area was kind of separate from that. Right, right, right. But still, you know, to hold its own, um, I don't know. I just, I can see where a setup like that's kind of fun. And I think if it's done well and done right, which this one was, but. Like you say, it was expensive. I think my coffee was $12 or something. It was not cheap. You but, got a fancy coffee, though. Yeah, I, I know, but they even beat Starbucks. I, I mean, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> That's what you get with, you know, that kind of uh, atmosphere. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is true. And you're buying, the, you're, you're buying the environment. I, and I understand ambience. that. That's right. Yeah, the ambiance. <laughs> Plus, it's a small business, and I would... You know, I, I, as all, most people know, I like to support small businesses. So it is what it is. It was just a little bit unexpected, I think. Um, but outside of that, I would have to also say it was worth it. The environment was cool. The people were friendly. Uh, it was a fun place to go hang out and I would certainly go back. So, mm -hmm. you know, $15 coffee or not, but, um, and it wasn't 15, but I think, I think it was like 12 or something. It was, uh, did you pay for mine? You um, may have, it, not in the twelve dollars. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I will also say though, it was one of the best coffees I've ever gotten out to. It you pay a little more, but they did do a good job. So from a standpoint of the drink, it was also good. So this isn't. I'm not ragging on them. I'm just. I was like, say, just be prepared that you will open your wallet a little bit more than you might expect. And you know, Bill, you kind of brought this up previously, and I'm going to circle us back to it as some of the Wizards of the Coast stuff because. I got for the first time the chance to use D&D Beyond. Now, the reason I hadn't used it before was because there was a problem with if I created a character, at least this is what I was told, I wouldn't be able to talk about it on our show because of the licensing agreement. Now, can you give us just a quick synopsis of that and have they fixed it? D&D uh, Beyond is a bit of a mess. And their licensing and such like that, and their end user license agreement is ugly. Um, but it's basically an online cloud, I guess you could say, repository and such for character sheets that 
also have automation, but Wizards of the Coast is like expanding it, wanting, you know, to sell you microtransactions like custom digital dice, uh, things like that. And it's been boycotted very hard because of the open gaming license problem. And I've tried it a few times. The free stuff was just so bare bones that I was like, I was not interested. And then, you know, putting in a monthly fee to this just isn't great. Now, wow. This makes me want to use a piece of paper. Okay. And and make a character sheet on a piece of paper and then I keep it and that's it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I have, I have form fillable PDFs that I use for backups, but it's, you know, their model is that kind of scenario where even if you're not actively playing, you're going to keep paying for it because you don't want to lose what you got in it. Whereas, mm. you know, so it's that kind of subscription model of stuff. I don't personally think it's good. You know, you're buying books for there. Wizards of the Coast is going to, I think, push more to keep it as its own to where you only can get the digital books through them. They're, they are definitely getting away from print. Yep. It seems like because they're trying to do their virtual tabletop. I in, don't see it. Good... I'm going to, I'm going to interject this because this was one of the issues I did have with it as a programmer. I think the software works well. It works better than roll 20 in my opinion, as far as usability. But I noticed that when I was doing my character creation, if I hadn't bought the book, it physically wouldn't allow me to select certain things. So the drop-down menu, like on your your species or your skills or your equipment, is populated based on the digital books that you've purchased. So if you haven't purchased one, um, you know, like a monster manual or something, just as an example, the stuff in that book, you cannot manually enter it and you cannot use it. So yeah. now I have to buy the digital book and the print book and they cost about the same too. Now I had a little bit of luck. It's one of the people in this gaming group happens to be a doctor and they do have a system that if you're part of a game that someone else has already purchased some of this material, you can have access to it as long as that character is connected to that game. That's just like roll 20. Mm-hmm. And um, he's spent well over a thousand dollars buying digital material that allowed for some of these other things to be done. But even with that investment in virtual stuff, there were still a few things that, uh, that I couldn't do because the material hadn't been purchased. So I do think that's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I go for other places that allow for homebrew or, you know, custom inputs like roll 20. Um, a lot of the other virtual tabletops. Yeah. Yeah. And now D and D beyond, I will say has a toggle for homebrew rules. You can turn that on. Um, I have not gone through the process of trying to figure out how to program what the homebrew rules would be. But there was at least a toggle for it, so I'll have to get back to you on whether I that works or not and how well. But, uh, but yeah, Roll20, you can pretty much do anything. It's it's very open, um, but it is also definitely a little bit clunkier. But it almost would have to be to be able to accommodate so much stuff. It's kind of the Mac versus Windows thing is you, uh, you know, or we were talking about consoles. If you develop for a console or environment like Mac, everyone's the same. Windows, everything is 180 degrees different, which does make it to be able to support all of that not as refined you know it's just a a side effect of it and i think that's part of what they're dealing with but um but yeah at the end of the day being um required to be in a digital environment now it will allow you to output a fillable pdf of your character after you make it it does have that function so 
you could do it that way, I suppose. But nevertheless, it's again going to cost you some money. But I guess that goes right along with your twelve dollar coffee in a way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. This this is not sounding like a lot of fun. I, I I've have I have different memories, you know, of sitting at a table with books and maps and and dice and little figures, and that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I do agree. I do agree with you. Like, I like the physical tabletop, and in the physical game, what we're doing is using D and D Beyond for the character management. But we still have the physical table with the miniatures and all of that and books. So, you know, it's kind of this hybrid thing. It just costs twice as much. All right. Well, next week again, we're going to be talking about uh, the Comic Con, and until then, this is User Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.